dominant social norms and expectations shape how individuals and their public activities are understood in Roman antiquity. Dominant social norms and expectations shape how individuals and their public activities are understood in Roman antiquity. Various shifts influence the production and disillusion of prejudices towards certain types of occupations. In Trade and Taboo, Disreputable Professions in the Roman Mediterranean, Sarah Bond explores the legal, social, and literary modes of persecution and stigmatization of unseemly occupations and voluntary associations. One's membership in Roman society was often regulated through reputation and social position. Criers, funerary workers, and tanners were among the many trades that were viewed as unwholesome, marginalizing these individuals from the broader community. Over time, there were shifts in social perceptions of certain types of work, often catalyzed by religious communities. In our discussion, we talked about taboos as an analytical category, reading soundscapes in ancient texts, views of death, corpses, and pollution, the social context of tanners and their odors, mint workers and state labor, bakers and sensual trades, gladiators, archaeological topography, the role of Christian and Jewish communities in shaping social norms, and maybe surprisingly, rednecks, the field of classics, blogging, how to do good public scholarship, the women of ancient history database, and how walls embody emotions of fear. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's my wonderful conversation with Sarah Bond. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for joining me in New Books in Religion. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. So this is this is a really interesting book, Trade and Taboo, Disreputable Professions in the Roman Mediterranean. Um, and you, you do a whole lot in this book. Um, you deal with kind of material culture, textual analysis, history, um, and you're looking at legal, social, and literary modes of stigmatization, I guess we could probably say, right, of uh, professions and the voluntary associations that kind of arise around these. Um, and I think uh, I, I'm excited to, to talk to you about this. But um, before we get into the book, um, it's our tradition here to to learn a little bit about how you got interested uh, in the study of religion, in classics. Um, were there moments or influential mentors that kind of steered you into either the content that you look at or the types of approaches that you take? Right. So I come from... Appalachia. I was born in Roanoke, and then I grew up uh, until high school uh, in Richmond, Virginia, and then moved back to Roanoke. Uh, so I come from from a kind of lower middle class background, which is different for classics. It's not exactly what somebody who grows up in uh, rural Virginia normally engages with. Uh, my <laughs> parents are both extremely well-learned and, and well-read, but my dad worked for a nonprofit food pantry. He's an army veteran. He was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. You know, my mom is uh, an EG technician, so uh, it's not exactly the, the background that one expects for a classicist oftentimes, but in the Virginia school system, they teach Latin, and I started taking Latin in ninth grade, and 
I really enjoyed it and enjoyed going to Rome. And then when I went to the University of Virginia, I started getting much more interested in epigraphy and Latin and material culture and started to excavate a lot in the, in the summertime. So uh, that, that was kind of the start of me getting interested in the ancient world. Uh, but I think that the religion part probably came from the fact that uh, I grew up going to church maybe five to six hours a week, depending on youth group and choir and Sunday school, and also going to uh, church. And my parents were a big part of the United Methodist congregation there. And so I always grew up with a, a very uh, strong background in, in um, the Gospels and in the New Testament in particular, but didn't have a lot of familiarity with uh, the Old Testament, even though I come from a background wherein my grandmother is Jewish and uh, there is a, a Jewish part of my family and and that I am partially Jewish that I wanted to find out more about. So that that was kind of the background that shaped me going into my dissertation research uh, at the University of North Carolina. Uh, and I really started a lot with law and marginalization and epigraphy, which had been the things I had focused on for a long time. But I had the benefit of having James Reeves who was in the classics department at UNC, uh, be somebody who was on my dissertation committee. Uh, and James Reeves was one of the only people at that time at, at UNC who was really focused on late antiquity and on the late Roman world. Uh, even though my own advisor, Richard Talbert, had been working a lot with the Tabula Pudingeriana and of maps in late antiquity, James Reeves was really the one that got me more interested in early Christianity and religion, along with the medievalist there, whose name is Brett Whalen, who focuses on uh, the First Crusade and the Apocalypse. So I had a lot of really strong uh, religion scholars surrounding me, um, some that I met and some that I didn't, uh, like Bart Ehrman, who existed at UNC as if there was like this, this great, uh, you know, influence of religion and culture that, that he represented and, and then inspired in a lot of people on campus uh, and people that I got to meet directly, like Jody Magnus, uh, who is a, a wonderful historian of, of ancient Judaism and also late antiquity. So, yeah, I just had really wonderful people around me so that when I started thinking about marginalization in a legal mindset that people uh, kind of encouraged me to think about marginalization, uh, not only through legal institutions and stigmas, but also marginalization through law as directed towards certain religious groups. So even though uh, it didn't fit into the dissertation, uh, that is where an article that I wrote for for classical antiquity called Altering Infamy came from, which was the use of it was an investigation into the use of the stigma of infamia against uh, heretics, apostates, and, and various religious groups that had been viewed as kind of dangerous to the orthodox view of Christianity. So that, yeah, I, I just had the benefit of, of having people around me who, who really inspired me to think more about stigmas than just uh, within let's say, the Republic and, and early empire, and particularly in late antiquity, a lot of the same stigmas used earlier uh, against, say, tradesmen are then appropriated and used against heretical sects. 
So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how this uh, started to formulate as a book. How, when did you start to think of these uh, case studies that you examine in some sort of kind of collective way? And maybe what, what were you trying to demonstrate through these, these uh, different examples? Well, it, it started as my dissertation. And so the, the first two chapters of the book really are the core of what the dissertation was. And the three subsequent chapters, as well as the introduction and conclusion, were added later on after the dissertation was defended. And I had begun to think more holistically about what a book would really look like. Um, but it really started think when I was thinking about um, uh the prohibitions in the late Roman Republic against certain types of tradesmen. And I had come to my advisor and I had said, uh, what if I worked on gladiators and marginalization and the use of infamia, uh, the legal stigma of infamia against gladiators? And he just kind of laughed and he said, I cannot read another dissertation on gladiators, uh, which is absolutely true. Uh, why are we picking these same kind of canonical topics over and over and over again when there are so many more interesting uh, pieces of evidence and, and people in particular that deserve investigation. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and looked at a number of laws, particularly from the late Republic, that started targeting people like criers and funeral workers. And I began to look through the work of people like John Bodell, um, and, and other people who had looked at what we call the leges libertini, which are these laws having to do with uh, funeral workers from Puteoli and Cumi. And I started thinking more and more about how people are outcasts because of their profession and not just because of sexual deviance, so like prostitutes and uh dancers and singers and theater workers, but also thinking more broadly about how um, sexual pollution was one type of pollution, but that there were other types of pollutants that then law could be used to uh, segregate these people and to outlaw them or to somehow kind of set a boundary zone around them uh, in different ways. So, yeah, it really was looking at the laws of the late Republican and early empire and seeing how they addressed different types of, of trades. And the ones that were being lumped together most frequently were the praecones, which are criers, town criers, and then funeral workers and uh, theater designatores, who are kind of like the um, event organizers of the ancient world. And I thought it was an, an interesting group of people, and I wanted to know more of, of why they had been grouped together at all. Now, um, part of what's going on here, uh, you use through this category of taboo, uh, but, but you're really through the work, thinking about social and religious shifts and how they influence the production or the dissolution of various uh, prejudices. Um, and I, I could see you know, people using this in like a theory and methods course or something like that, um, along with maybe one of these kind of case studies. So how do you use this analytical category in your project, and, and what role did taboos play in ancient Roman society? Certainly, I, I think that we all have to recognize, right, that, that taboo is a, a modern uh, anthropological term that comes from the original Polynesian term. Um, and, and certainly there has been a lot of anthropological work that I wanted to recognize in the book, specifically of Mary Douglas and her work with 
pollution and uh, certainly of later historians of for instance, Greek religion, like Robert Parker, who began to think about ideas of miasma. But Romans really don't have just one word for pollution or what we might call taboo. And so taboo for me is a very broad-ranging category that really just uh, means that people are um, having a negative reaction to it <laughs> in some way. Um, and then you have to address the kind of surgical tools that Roman ha Romans have at their disposal in order to um, cut that kind of cancer or, or kind of isolate that cancer in, in some way. So those tools are oftentimes um, laws. So, you know, statutes that say they can only live in a certain place or they have to wear a certain color clothing at nighttime. Um, or they can be things like social taboos, which is to say that they are uh, – they are not codified within law, but they certainly are practiced by people, for instance, let's say um, attitudes of disgust. So avoiding people on the street or not allowing certain people to attend various festivals or not inviting people to your party or writing poetry about them that is just invective. Um, I wanted to, to kind of uh, talk about both legal taboos and social taboos and, and show that disgust and taboo are not uh, definitions or categories that were permanent. These are very fluid definitions uh, that change over time. And so, of course, we're going to sometimes see consistencies in disgust. A lot of times people will have the same reaction to people who handle feces over time. Uh, but sometimes there are changes in reactions and constructs of disgust, and thus this gets translated into shifts in taboos. Um, we, we like to project our own ideas and, and modern belief systems onto other people, but in truth, it's, it's a huge mosaic of taboos throughout the Mediterranean that is not static. So really the book is trying to use these case studies, which has the criers, the funeral workers, then it has um, tanners, mint workers, and then bakers, uh, to really exemplify what I argue in the introduction, which is to say that we can learn a lot about um, really the outcasters rather than just the outcasts by looking at how taboos were constructed, how they were enforced, and then how they changed over time. So uh, I think it's kind of useless to have a theory book that completely uh, presents theoretical frameworks and then doesn't actually apply it to the evidence. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's just, I, I read a lot of theory books that then don't have a lot of thorough case studies, maybe just anecdotal um, remarks within them. Uh, and so I wanted to give some examples of, of how people could um, analyze uh, in a long durée format, which is something I think has a lot of relevance today to taking a methodology or a theory and not just looking at, say, a decade or 20 years, but looking at a long durée um, in, in order to, to see kind of the larger levels and, and impact of it that maybe you can't see on a micro level. Um, so I, I think that there is great worth in philology and micro history, but I also wanted to show the worth of uh, a macro history, which can also open you up to a lot of critique from people. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, at least from my vantage point as a scholar of religion, but one outside of your immediate context, um, I think it's really valuable, and I, I hope uh, listeners might pick up the book and, and explore it more. Um, so maybe we could uh, kind of dive into some of these case studies. Um, you begin with these criers who you've mentioned. Could you talk a little bit about who these individuals were, what did they do, and how were they perceived within Roman society? Right. Well, in the late Republic, we have uh, we have a community that is rapidly growing. Uh, Rome has been growing, particularly since the end of the Second Punic War, uh, into the Republic on on a on a scale that is really quite astounding in terms of the economy, but also in terms of the landmass. This also means a, a large number of slaves and then freedmen are coming into the Italic Peninsula and are changing the demographics within the Italic Peninsula in the late Republic and, and then into the early empire. And this is a time period that we have hovering between 10 and 15% literacy. So that means 85% of the people uh, in most of these communities have uh, maybe what we would call low literacy or not full literacy. Uh, they can maybe read a few words, but they are not sitting down usually with books right before they go to bed, uh, and, and most of them certainly are not uh, engaging in an incredible amount of reading on a day-to-day -day basis. And that means that news and ideas, uh, but also things like auctions, are going to have to be meted out to tradespeople um, that use their voice. Uh, that sell their voice in order to um, in order to spread ideas, news, and also to to sell goods. And those are these prikones, uh, and and the town criers really are the ones, the epicenters within towns like Rome, uh, that are going to to know an incredible amount about the various peoples and goods and services within the town. So within the HBO series Rome, they kind of have a prico that stands in, in the middle of the forum and yells out the news. Uh, but for instance, we know that the commentarii of Julius Caesar, which eventually would turn into the Bellum Gallicum, were read aloud to the people. So an incredible amount of information is being passed um, that is to say, person to person in terms of letters or just messages and also big news events through these criers. They have an incredible uh, amount of power, but also they have a, a lot of resonance in uh, this soundscape of the ancient world, which was something that I was very interested to, to think about because it's something that's so ephemeral and very quickly gone once the Prico speaks, unless somebody like Cicero writes it down for us. Uh, so yeah, the, the criers in particular are interesting because as the bureaucracy of Rome begins to grow and we begin to see more and more governors and then uh, imperial proconsuls that are sent out into the provinces, that the control over information and the news that is being spread about the emperor and the imperial family is oftentimes more and more tightly controlled by retinues of Prycones who are essentially tied to magistrates. Uh, 
Um, and so uh, I think that you can see an anxiety about information and news that is not unfamiliar to us today in this very moment in time. Um, and I think one of the imperial reactions to this anxiety is to have an increasing number of Tricones on the payroll that get legitimacy from being part of the imperial bureaucracy and being essentially low-level administrators, um, and that then those who are not part of this bureaucracy are seen as less legitimate. They're seen as, as oftentimes uh, de classe and, and very um, much lower level artisans who engage in things like auctions. And Romans have, uh, in addition to anxieties about rapid expansion and demographic changes, also have a lot of attitudes and biases against people that they feel are profiting from the misfortune of others. And Tricones, who sell off the goods of people who fall into bankruptcy oftentimes, are kind of prime representatives and targets that we get in satirical poetry and also in, in say, the letters of Cicero that are essentially pointing at these middlemen and mediators who are profiting from this rapid expansion and uh, are, are kind of immoral artisans and tradesmen that are taking advantage of uh, people. So they... they as, as disreputable tradesmen almost always do, they are canvases for other people's anxieties and fears. Um, if we just think about other people as kind of blank marble or canvases uh, that we project our own images and kind of light shows onto, uh, then we can see that oftentimes people who we view as disreputable or horrid or sinful, etc., are uh, people that, that represent to us things that we reject or fear or we uh, in, in, in some ways uh, don't want to be a part of. But that doesn't necessarily mean those people were really like that. <laughs> um, another really interesting case study uh, is this one revolving around issues of death and work around death. Um, so could you talk a little bit about... Roman views surrounding death and funerary work. Um, how did this affect funeral workers? And um, and here also um, the kind of religious angle, uh, I think, is important uh, because you talk a little bit about how Jewish and Christian attitudes uh, shift some of the social norms. Right. I think that uh, death pollution is something that is quite common in a lot of communities and cultures even today. Uh, attitudes towards corpses and the idea that there is some sort of pollution that can be spread from uh, dead bodies is, is something that was very prevalent in medieval Japan, um, certainly uh, in various parts uh, of the ancient world. This was something that was quite common, this belief that there was a miasma or pollution from handling of corpses. Uh, Romans certainly believed in the burial of the dead and that various family members had a obligation to bury the dead. Uh, but there was not as much of a, a focus on the necessity for burial uh, and and the generosity of giving everybody a burial that, that became uh, much more a part of the Judeo-Christian um, 
background and an idea uh, and ideology. Um, so Romans really have uh, a lot of uh, reactions to corpses that that then get reflected in law and and social mores as well. So like the laws that I mentioned earlier from Puteoli and Cumi, which say essentially that funeral workers have to wear red caps and live outside of the city center and only enter in at night to get corpses. Um, Oftentimes these were slaves or freedmen. Uh, We only know uh, of men who were serving as funeral workers at the time. And they have a demoted legal status. They actually um, cannot become municipal officers within the decurial council, for instance. Um, so they, they are dealing with stigmas that um, come as a direct result of their contact with death, in, in all likelihood. Uh, so we get a shift then when we get into early Christianity because of this um, belief in resurrection of the body and the belief that fossores, which are the name that is given to grave diggers, for instance, in the catacombs, are actually performing a a Christian service and and a Christian rite. And the catacombs have a lot of different types of people uh, that are buried, Um, some that are non-Christian, some that are Jewish, some that are Christian. Uh, But in particular, we have a number of inscriptions for fossores within the catacombs um, that tell us that these people uh, may have been associated with the church as lower level clerics and that they were revered in many ways for performing a, a service that then later on facilitated the resurrection of the body. Um, so yeah, beliefs about, uh, for instance, uh, that all corpses should be buried and given a proper burial that come about, for instance, uh, from the story of Joseph of Arimathea um, and uh, the burying of Jesus and his body, but also much earlier than within the Judaic culture that that all bodies deserve a burial. Um, this begins to have an impact on, at least in my belief, the perception and status of funeral workers within uh, early Christian communities. So that even if Romans had this earlier uh, belief that corpses transmit pollution, that early Christianity comes in and begins to shift some of the perceptions of these artisans um, in, in many ways. So um, that is definitely a, a chapter that is in the book, and there's an even longer article that goes more into the late antique funeral workers uh, within the Journal of Late Antiquity. So. Yeah, I, I kind of started off my career only talking about funeral workers for a few years. <laughs> it's an interesting topic, yeah, and that, that chapter, I think, is really successful in kind of communicating uh, your, your broader goals. Um, oh, thanks. I should say that not everybody agrees with it. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, there. I, I've had many debates. Uh, with people who don't believe, for instance, my belief that the Theodosian Code reveals that many of these funeral workers, which are alternately called Dekani and Kopiatai, uh, become lower-level clerics. Um, they're called clericy uh, in the plural in, in the Theodosian Code, and yet there have been arguments 
for instance, within a book called The Care of the Dead in Late Antiquity, that these were not clerics at all, and these they never would have been incorporated into the lower levels of the clergy. And my argument is, is that there's no standardization of the minor clerical orders uh, within the 3rd and the 4th century. Uh, it's all very haphazard, and nobody is working uh, kind of monolithically across the entire Mediterranean to standardize all clerical orders. So there definitely were churches that employed funeral workers to bury the dead early, usually Christian congregants, but not always. And then there were other churches who didn't have funeral workers, but Constantine standardizes it by creating collegia of uh, funeral workers within the city of Constantinople that then other places like Antioch uh, and Aphrodisias also, I think, begin to emulate that model of Christian piety through the provision of burial. Now, um, the, you also – there's a chapter that you look at, at Tanner's, um, and here, uh, just for the benefit of the listener, um, you, you, you talk a little bit about how kind of literary sources um, and material sources uh, or material evidence don't really um, match up, which um, I'll, I'll kind of leave as a teaser for, uh, for future readers just since we don't have a ton of time. Um, but in the second half of the book – um, you shift more into kind of an examination of the role between um, workers and professionals um, in relationship to kind of the the necessity for state labor. Um, so, and, and here you look at mint workers, as you mentioned before, and uh, and and bakers specifically, and what you call the sensual trades more broadly. Um, can you talk a little bit about? What are you trying to do in the second half of the book, and how do these kind of uh, case studies exemplify this? Right. Well, the Tanners, I think, was really trying to show the disconnect between the language that we employ for invective and the actual what we might call archaeological or real topography. That oftentimes there is a constructed world that we speak about and that we create and conjure and imagine that is not borne out in the actual archaeological record. Um, and so when we go back and try and reconstruct the past, say from the Book of Acts, uh, or from Tacitus, or from Suetonius, or say from the Historia Augusta, we have to always realize that this is literature and uh, that texts are representations of a world that may or may not have actually existed, uh, that we all uh, have hyperbole and we all employ different uh, literary constructions that are going to be unfamiliar or different to people living 2,000 years later and trying to reconstruct that world from what you say. And so we have to be careful when we use evidence from primary sources, like, say, Artemidorius of Daldus and his dream manual, in order to uh, actually remake the physical world of these tradesmen in particular. So the tanners are, are just one example, but there's a huge disconnect um, oftentimes between uh, the, the mud that we sling at people and then the day-to-day -day lives of those people that we've thrown mud at. <laughs> and so that that's really what the tanners chapter is, is trying to show, along with um, kind of commonalities in invective, like attacking people for smelling bad uh, or um, associating dirt with immorality. Um, all of these things are, are kind of um, invective approaches or rhetorical approaches that we still invest in today. That's 
still how we marginalize people through language, even if the reality is very different. But for the last two chapters on mint workers and bakers, what I'm really trying to show is that the vocabulary of marginalization, both legal and social, then is appropriated and applied by the state in order to create a system wherein uh, the economy is much more assured. Um, so uh, just as the language of infamia was appropriated from the Republic and the Empire in order to be applied to heretics, apostates, and, and quote-unquote pagans, um, we have the appropriation of this same stigmatizing language in order to create uh, certain groups of collegia and, and various people that that then are permanently serving the state in some way, whether that is through providing um, milled grain that then can be turned into bread, or whether it is mint workers. Um, so in the late antique economy, there is a big focus on stability in a period of instability and the use of law in order to create these uh, groups, these associations of artisans and tradesmen that cannot escape what we might call a caste um, is something that, that is quite prevalent within this late antique um, state-run factories, we might say. Um, so there are a lot more examples I could have given, like purple dye workers, for instance, uh, and, and certainly purple was only able to be worn after a certain period by the imperial family. Um, but uh, this is all uh, a reaction to uh, perceptions of need and perceptions uh, of provision. Um, but they're still appropriating kind of basic um language and associative models from earlier on in order to justify the creation of these collegia. Right. Now, um, the, the final point you make in the book, um, I think is really important for listeners here. Um, you talk uh, about kind of this process of uh, inheriting prejudices from uh, the, the, the Roman context um, as a shifting uh, or growing in a, in a Christian context. Um, and you talk a little bit about uh, some early Christian clerics uh, within the later Roman Empire. Um, so in, in what ways were elite Roman prejudices towards commerce and trade uh, carried over or rejected within uh, the clerical order of the, the early church there? Right. Well, early... Earlier Republican writers like Cicero, uh, particularly in his work, The Deificiis, which is on duties, um, he talks a, a lot about pretensions and biases that he has against certain trades. So, for instance, um, perfumers and dancers and anybody who practices a trade for profit or works in a workshop. And that really isn't going to be applicable to most people in their day-to-day -day lives. They aren't going to have that same prejudice against tradesmen. Um, but within the formation of the early Christian church during the fourth century, at least, we know that a, a lot of pivotal writers and, and um, early theologians are thinking uh, about not only uh, the Gospels and, and about Scripture, they're also reading kind of these classical rhetorical texts from Cicero, for instance, and, and, and then applying them to their own ideas. And the Roman aristocratic uh, beliefs regarding trade and regarding profit continued on uh, much 
in, in, in the way they do oftentimes today in Europe uh, to kind of um, explain certain prejudices and, and biases against uh, lower level tradesmen. This idea that um, you should have worth that is based off of land ownership and being sufficient rather than uh, being hired by someone else and being paid a salary to do a trade. Um, and certainly within early Christian communities, uh, tradesmen and artisans have been oftentimes the lower level clerics um, and sometimes upper level clerics that have populated um, those orders. But within the fourth and certainly into the fifth centuries, we start seeing more and more uh, bishops in particular being pulled from upper level aristocratic families. And they carry with them these pretensions that they were trained and, and engaged with their entire lives. And so we start seeing more and more in the church councils, particularly in the late 4th and early 5th century, uh, church councils bringing up this idea that uh, bishops and certainly other types of clerics as well um, should not be engaged in trade and commerce because this is sullying to them. If they are focused on profit, then they aren't focused on um, on their work as uh, as early Christian um, transmitters of the word of Christ. That that profit gets in the way of all of this. Um, but but I think we can trace the roots of all of these ideas kind of back to um, even Aristotelian ideas of trade and profit and ideas of what we would call banausic trades. That is to say, manual trades. So this is a classical rhetoric that is not abandoned into early Christianity. We can't think that just because we go into late antiquity that there's an abandonment of the ideas or prejudices or pretensions that had existed in earlier classical antiquity. Um, and, and I think prejudices die hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Sarah, it's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, and one of the things that I, I really love about your scholarship is um, – you know, some people might hear about this book and be like, oh, well, you know, how is it? Why is that important? Um, and you've really been demonstrating this throughout the conversation. But um, I, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little explicitly about, um, you know, how you see your work in classics kind of uh, being important in kind of a contemporary world. You, you do all sorts of uh, digital scholarship, public scholarship uh, that uh, I think is unique and important. Um, so perhaps maybe you could, you could talk a little bit about that in the, in the kind of broader context of, uh, what, what else can we look for, for, from you in the future? I think that everything that we write is in some way a mirror on us. I'm not saying that every time I write about prostitution or every time I write about bars and antiquity, it's me. Uh, but I think that that's certainly a, a lot of the, um, things that I write about are things that concern me either my earlier life or, or currently. Um, and so that's really, I think, where the, the book came from is that I felt uh, very different when I went into classics. I felt like someone who had to abandon her southern accent, who had to become a different person when I went to the University of Virginia than, than I feel like I really had been in, in high school. Um, and a lot of people who uh, separated different groups like rednecks from, um, you know, very wealthy people from the South who came from old families. Uh, I think I saw a, a lot of class pretensions as 
as I was growing up, and, and that is perhaps what inspired me in the book. And, and I think that that's the role of classics in popular scholarship more broadly, is that um, there is so much to learn about the classical world that, that really is very different from our own modern world. But I think that certainly I look to parallels with antiquity as a way of uh, kind of instructing and showing that, that, that we have a relationship with the past, that, that there, there are certain emotions like fear and anxiety and happiness and love uh, that exist across the human continuum. And that's one way that, that the humanities are, are extremely important is that we can use our kind of modes of critical analysis that we've been taught and that we've finally honed in order to show the differences, but also the similarities between different cultures. Um, so I think the public scholarship is about showing that the classical world is probably about more than just gladiators, even though that gladiators are fun um, and, and certainly, um, Every time I allow my students to write a paper about anything, they always choose kind of uh, prostitutes, charioteers, <laughs> gladiators. <laughs> Not all of them, but it's very popular. Um, but it shows you actually that we're very concerned with some of the same things today. Um, sports, competition, athletics, sex. All of these things are fascinating to us, and, and I think that, that they uh, deserve to be talked about in a nuanced way. I was rather um, unsatisfied uh, with some of the, the public scholarship that had been going on from non-classicists and non-historians um, within the public sphere, and so I started blogging in, in order to try and address that because I felt like a lot of the people who were reporting on the ancient world didn't understand the primary sources and the secondary scholarship the way that that a lot of other people do and so it was time to stop only writing uh, academic articles and only going to conferences and speaking to small groups of people and to say that uh, one of the, the great abilities that we should have as academics is not only making the ancient world accessible to 10 or 15 other people within an academic group that know Latin and Greek, but really it's even more challenging to, to say that we can make this accessible, um, everybody's scholarship in various different ways, to, to a larger group group of people. And that is what is going to keep the humanities uh, alive. Um, it's certainly not going to be kept alive by us having debates um, among an echo chamber of 20 to 30 people in a room having a conference called, how do we keep the humanities alive? Um, that's not going to do it. Uh, but but you're, yeah. You're not going I to think, that one? No, no. I mean, I guess... <laughs> I'm a little sick to death of, of us all wringing our hands about it. We have to do something that is more uh, that is more active and less passive, um, and a whole lot less uh, a whole lot. <laughs> A whole lot less having having conversations among each other about it, and uh, more proselytizing about it. <laughs> We're religion scholars; we should know how to proselytize pro <laughs> properly. <laughs> but we we got to practice that a little bit more uh, than than we currently are. So I think that that's where the shift in public scholarship for me has come. Is that um, I was getting frustrated with 
the world changing and not understanding um, how valuable these skills and ideas were to me growing up in um, in a family that that really didn't ever talk about Roman history at all. Um, doesn't mean that you can't learn and engage with it and, and find some source of comfort in it. Yeah. Well, if listeners aren't familiar with your work already, I hope they will uh, seek you out as a model for this type of uh, scholarship. Um, just real briefly, uh, you uh, I know you're doing more traditional scholarship, but also in exciting ways. Um, are, are you working on any kind of major projects at the moment that maybe you could tell us about? I've been working on a database of uh, women called WO, uh, which is a database of, of women that do ancient history all the way from, uh, let's say, the Trojan War till, let's say, Charlemagne, um, to allow people to have a, a kind of binder full of women that they can consult when they need to have um, book that when they need to do book reviews, when they need to invite speakers to campus, when they need to have a tenure review file and, and people to serve on that tenure committee. Military historians, for instance, when that is patently untrue. And uh, data is a great way to um, make people shut up. Um, it's, it's a great way when you show up at an all-male panel when they tell you, oh, well, there's just not women that do X or Y to pull out the data and be like, you're absolutely incorrect. And rather than yelling at you, I'm just going to give you this digital resource for you um, to find women and, and certainly to ask them to be on your panel. Um, so that's kind of the digital thing that I'll be working on over sabbatical in the next semester. And then the book uh, that I'm working on now is, is on walls. It's on imaginary and, and real walls uh, and how we use walls and how we use architecture to embody emotions like fear, mm. which uh, obviously has a, a lot of political resonance at the moment. Um, the kind of rhetoric of walls and barricades and gates um, is, is something that has become kind of fascinating to me, um, particularly within the ancient world and, and also how we continue to use the rhetoric of walls and fear even today. Um, so, yeah, that one will be very much uh, meant to be accessible to just regular people that can pick it up and they want to learn about the walls of Troy or they want to learn about the Theodosian walls or the walls of Ravenna. And then to think about uh, whether walls are always about defensiveness, uh, whether they are always to, to defend a city, or whether they are meant to project a, a different kind of rhetoric altogether. Mm. So. Well, it sounds great. I wish you the best of luck, and thanks again for making the time to, to talk. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. That was my conversation with Sarah Bond about her great new book, Trade and Taboo, Disreputable Professions in the Roman Mediterranean, published with University of Michigan Press, in 2016. Thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion. We'll see you next time.